I'm ready when you are. You can feel the country's on a knife edge. It's only, what, 30 minutes late starting? Let's do this! <laughs> it's a joke, obviously. You're in retreat. We're not rioting yet. I don't like that question. You're just saying shit and you don't even know what you're talking about. But Spider-Gate sounds way cooler than Manta Rays, doesn't it? And I was like, well, here's my two cents. You, you, you need a lot of stuff. That's how we should describe the podcast. If they ever went around recruiting one more person, then we'd have double the number of people listening. Well then. Let's start the show. All right, welcome back, Brad fans. And if you detected a bit of a chuckle at the opening here, <laughs> it's because, well, we're finally back with we're back. the two Brads together. So, of course, you know, he's making me laugh as we're about to start. So, welcome, Brad. Good to see you. Well, thank you. Yeah, I thought for a little while we we're going to have to change it from two Brad to you to one Brad in a room with a microphone staring at a wall. But... <laughs> It's it's good to be back. It's been a, we were saying earlier what I think it was June or July. So yeah, uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. Due to various reasons, we won't cast blame as to whose fault it was. Uh, no, you you know you've only had what like eight weeks holiday this year, so <laughs> you know I'm not I'm not here to apportion blame, listeners. But you know, and you know the the fact that you've gone off and done your own thing. Uh, you know all these in conversations that just pop up. Yeah. You know every other week. So oh, I'm starting to get the hint. Maybe he just doesn't want to record with me anymore. Well, that wasn't the case. Obviously, our schedules took a little uh, took a little while to realign, but we're here. And yeah, I tried to keep you know keep our fans happy with you know a few episodes here and there. Uh, all all well, six of I'm... our fans. You know, I got I got at least three emails. Yeah, well, you've interviewed six of them, <laughs> so. We basically we had to record together because you've interviewed all the fans yeah. <laughs> and now here we are. And in fact, I'm not even sure most of those listeners were actually. No, 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 no. I had to coerce a lot of them into doing it, um, and I'm pretty sure most people that do the show do not listen. People don't like to hear their own voice. That's what I'm. That's what I'm going to say. It's not that they don't want to hear my voice. It's that they don't want to hear their. Oh, own I, voice. I, I always, I always listen back when we record an episode. But I, I have to admit, I always press mute when. I hear your voice. I don't, I don't hear your voice. I've had to listen to it drone on while we're recording. I, why would I want to listen to it then on on iTunes or yeah. Stitcher or whatever I'm listening to? Well, day? to be fair, I listen back to the episodes, but I just turn them on in on all the devices that I have and leave the room so that it boosts our listener count. <laughs> so it looks like it looks like we're more popular than we are. Hey, that's right. And you've been on so many holidays, I'm starting to think that maybe our sponsorship has really kicked in and taken off and you've just been pocketing all that cash. No, 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 no. But like I said, no, cause you like look, I said, it's... You know, you, you're in a fairly snazzy room though with this snazzy new mic and snazzy new headphones that haven't fallen apart in the hour that we've been speaking before it's this. It's true. They always used to fall apart. And as I said, you've been on holiday, safari. It's true. Mm, I'm, I'm starting to sense that maybe the sponsorship deal has kicked in and... Brit Brad is on the uh, 
shitty end of that stick. Yeah, well, the new equipment's all tax write-off. Let me that that's first first <laughs> and foremost right there. The sponsorship, which will we should mention right away, is we talked about this, Brad. It's proportional to what you put into the show. So, you know, <laughs> your cut is just you know, you haven't you haven't pulled your weight yet. You'll get your cut when you put in a little well, effort. That implies that you think I'm fat and pulling my my <laughs> weight. You know, the fact that I I can't lift my own weight is something between me and my personal trainer, and my doctor. Flash, you shouldn't be throwing accusations. Well, let's just me. say this: one thing you won't have to lift is that annoying poster tube if you go to featherposter.com and check out getting a canvas poster for your next conference, presentation, whatever it is that you need. Uh, You can go to featherposter.com, get your poster printed on canvas, which is foldable, folds up. You could put it in your shirt pocket, I'm pretty sure. It's such a great... uh, So actually, I was traveling for work few weeks back and at the airport you can so either people are walking through the airport with a bazooka on their shoulder or you can tell they're off to a conference <laughs> you know you have to make that judgment call depending on the airport uh, one's probably more likely than the other well yeah exactly but as so as i was walking i was walking by this this guy and he had the poster on as i just walked by I went they're the most <laughs> and he's like look around and i just kept on walking. yeah but you didn't give him the promo so, code well you know ultimately i was just trying to make his life better that's right you're so altruistic but, yeah, you know, but you're right. So, what what is the promo code? Just refresh. At checkout, you can memory. enter the promo code to Brad T W O Brad to Brad, all one word, and that would save you ten dollars on a canvas poster. Big saving. You could put it in your put it in your bag, put it in your pocket. It doesn't fold. Looks great. There you go. It's a win win. I don't. I, yeah, I don't see the downside to it. I, I really, really don't. Do. That's featherposter.com. Thank you always to Simon for getting in touch. And yeah. we hope you guys uh, are at least checking it out and considering a canvas poster for your next poster. Or just buy one with your face on it. He said he would do that. You could you could really? use it as a blanket. Oh. We could get one. He did say he would he would put, like, I mean, you know. Oh, what a... Uh, what I would love is I'd love to do that with the picture of you and I yeah. on there. And then the next conference that you or I rock up to, enter some sort of fake abstract whatever, yeah, abstract, yeah. whatever to, to get in and then oh yeah you've been accepted for a poster brilliant and just then put it up there. ditch yeah. the abstract just put us up there <laughs> and it just like be a shameless plug for our podcast yeah for our podcast and for Feather Poster yeah that's right oh, yeah, actually that's, that's it's a pretty it. good pl- yeah. publicity stunt because yeah. I was just thinking of like getting it and then wearing it like a cape or something you know <laughs> <laughs> That that was my great idea. I trouble is I'd want to wear it as a cape, and I'd also want to wear you know pants with it on as well. And this is just going down a route that we don't really need to be going down. I don't think. Yeah, but well, we could get two made up. You know, you I could... don't really want to talk to listeners about pants with your face on, but because then I'd want to wear them inside out, obviously, <laughs> and then it just gets really awkward. Well, it's good to be back. I'm sure the listeners are really enjoying this. They, well, they are. well, do you know what, Flash? We're back. And it, you know the listeners have waited what since June, July, so really let's we've teased them enough. Let's go straight in with what they're basically here for. Yeah, well, our uh, bread and our bread and butter is what we're famous the Ebola for. Ebola update. Here it is. 
I did try and think of some way to like make, you know, bread and butter. You feel like you'd be able to make like a put a bowl in there somewhere, but I don't. I I failed miserably. What an Ebola sandwich? No, yeah, no, no. Flash, you know, we've had feedback before that we don't take Ebola seriously. <laughs> And now you've basically <laughs> just said we're taking bread and butter and put a boner in the middle. No, 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 no. So effectively, that is like a sandwich. Some kind of a pun. You know, anyway, doesn't matter. We do take it seriously, and because of that, we're going to like let's recap where we are because the current outbreak in Democratic Republic of Congo is still going on. It's just not hitting the news as often, um, and it is sort of in a declining phase. Finally, but. Okay. Not out of the woods yet. Uh, I think it was just last week. Most of the um, major health organizations and stuff were saying it's on the down, it's on the downward swing. But let's not, you know, this is they can actually be really prolonged at the end if we don't, you know, maintain the level of uh, commitment that they're doing. Um, so this one started all the way back in August first of two thousand eighteen. And currently, the cases have surpassed, the case number has surpassed 3,000. So this is the second biggest outbreak. Still hasn't uh, gone past the uh, the West Africa outbreak of 2014-2016. So during the first eight months of this outbreak, um, the case number went up to 1,000. Uh, so that was the first eight months starting in August first 2018 and then so at about after those first eight months so roughly between april and june of 2019 that doubled so in three months that doubled so that's when it really kicked off um so then between june and august the number of cases per week hit a high of averaging between 75 and 100 new cases a week and so since that high watermark of june and august of this year um the cases per week has declined and it's now hovering around 50 a week so as of october 5th so the beginning of this month um we had 3090 confirmed 2142 dead so just the quick math that's about 69 percent mortality which is what you'd expect from an from an Ebola outbreak, and yeah. then the news. So that's the situation that we're at. So it's declining. It is not under control yet. They are still, you know, not out of the woods. So do we? Is the is the decline because of control measures that are in? Presumably because of control yeah. measures that are being. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think it's just, you know, it's eighteen months. The last one was twenty. 20 something months i think so it's yeah, yeah it was yeah, kind of years. what you expect to be at well what you would hope <clears> to be at at this point i think they probably could have gotten this one under control quicker but there was the problems that we talked about before with the it's in a conflict zone so you have the already yeah. you know um the problems of mistrust in this in these parts of the world of foreign government agencies and medical agencies and all this well, stuff yeah yeah um exacerbated by conflict um and then the other thing to note is that there was a couple cases that they had in uganda so it did go to another country but they quickly got that that didn't spread um as far as i know and 
also the the major city there was a worry the last time we talked about it going from the sort of more remote regions of the Congo to the big the capital city of Goma and it did, there was cases there but again right, it yeah. didn't kick off uh, a bigger you know um, ordeal I guess we'll say so the interesting things to note the sort of new things that have come up that when I was preparing this sort of update is that there was actually um, a bit of research that came out that looked to map um, how the conflict actually exacerbated the 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 outbreak so they it's not a huge it wasn't a huge press release that I saw but they basically just created a timeline of the conflict events and along with a ethnographic appraisal of the local conditions that preceded and followed the conflict events so I'm guessing this is just kind okay. of uh, what people were there who left how many people were after the conflict event what are the sort of social right, conditions yeah. what are the sort of um i imagine um cultural groups that were there um and then they did a model of transmission and control using who data um and they looked at surges of incidents that coincided with the intensified conflict um and so the idea is that the conflict delays uh, or renders the contact tracing uh, incomplete. And contact tracing is a big part of an Ebola outbreak in which you have to, uh, when yeah. you have a known case, you then have to find everyone that's been in, in, in contact. contact. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so they think that that's really what, what slows it down. And, it, and the data <clears> showed <throat> that, that as soon as there was a conflict event, you know, the incidents went up and it was harder to do these contact tracing things. Uh, they also found that during the first week of vaccination, so prior to any of the conflict events, so I'm not sure exactly when that first week of vaccination was, but the experimental vaccine, which I'm going to talk about more in a second, um, was in use in this outbreak, as it was in the end of the last one. Um, so during the first week that they rolled out the vaccination, prior to any sort of um, conflict events that they had in their timeline, the vaccine effectiveness was 52%. And I don't know exactly what the calculation of vaccine effectiveness is, but basically they could see that this, it was working. Um, and then after the conflict events started to happen, um, this dropped uh, and at a minimum, it went all the way down to 4.8%. So that's a pretty big drop. So the the vaccine but, campaign. But yeah, during sorry. that, so no. So during that, are they still giving the same number of doses? So is it yeah. a physiological effect of the conflict zone and stress? No. You know, obviously we know that impacts on the immune system, or is it the fact that the vaccine just isn't getting through? Yeah, to where it needs I think to it's be? the latter. I think that's what it is. So I think this vaccine <clears throat> effectiveness thing is sort of like a a measurable you know like because it's like a protect they gave it they do it a lot in you know it's protective right like you give it before you get it so yeah. they were probably have some kind of measure where it's like we know that if we administer you know in the ring formation you know healthcare workers first and then around cases we try and get people yeah, like, around yeah, the cases like, that, like the herd yeah, immunity yeah. type thing that we've talked about and then yeah. um then we can see that like we would expect a normal incidence rate of this 
um, when you put the vaccine, that drops 50%. So you get this vaccine 50%. It's kind of, I'm speculating here a bit on what the actual calculation is, but I think it's something like this because then, yeah, after that, it's, it drops. And I don't think it's a, a measure of the vaccine itself isn't working in an individual. It, this is all about like population level data. So, you know, outbreak level data. Um, so yeah, it would be the latter of the two things that you suggested there. Um, and basically it just shows that um, the conflict repeatedly uh, reversed a declining phase of the epidemic. So there was times where it looked like it would be going down, a conflict event would happen and the cases would go up or incidents would go up or vaccine effectiveness, you know, that if you were able to maintain it, it would have significantly um, helped. So basically it's just, you know, kind of, Way to go, science, for proving something that we already knew. Hey, but that's what yeah, science well, is. Well, not always. Sometimes it's about new shit. <laughs> well, sometimes it's about disproving old yeah, shit. Yeah, and but. just having the data to be like, we all know this is true, but now we can actually say but, it's true, you know? Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. I thought that was an interesting little piece, and it's it was probably just, you know, when you when you think about just some eggheads in a lab that are just like, hey, we could actually probably map this and show it and i'm sure that you know some other eggheads at the who appreciate it because then they can actually it might provide a template for yeah exactly and it gives them numbers and i guess that's what they need to then lobby for money mm-hmm. funding access well i would be in whatever but then when we were talking pre-production sounds so posh because you know we sit down in the green room and we go over what the production yeah, we burp be. into the microphone you also mentioned about stuff. Yeah, you didn't record that. That would have been a great sign out. But anyway, <laughs> you know your inadequacy flashes let let not just me down, but the listeners down because they all wanted to hear it and you know they've been robbed of that. Um, but you you talked about also this new vaccine being approved. Yeah. So this was another story from last week, two weeks ago, uh, the eighteenth of October. The European Medicines Agency recommended that the Merck vaccine get approval by the European Commission. So that would make it a a commercial vaccine. And basically it would be, you know, for American or North American listeners, it would be like FDA approval. Um, So, so far, this vaccine has been used in this outbreak and 240,000, roughly 240,000 people have received it. So 240,000 at-risk people have received it. Um, do you know what? Do you, can you, do you even want to take a guess at what they're going to name it? Ooh, what commercial yeah. name? Uh, Immunabola. That's, that's not bad. Maybe you should get a, maybe you should switch careers and get into drug naming. Uh, Hey, it, it, we should do a feature on how that happens. Drug sometime. naming? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I have a brief snippet on how that, that works, and it's a crazy okay, one. Okay, all right. Well, here's the name, which I think is terrible. Ervibo. Okay. Ervibo. E-R-E-R-V-E-B-O. Ervebo. Ervibo. E-R-V-B-O. Ervibo. Ervebo? Ervebo? Yeah. I guess, to be honest, if you're at risk of Ebola and somebody offers you the vaccine, you're not going to care what it's called. Just give me the damn vaccine. Yeah, but. I suppose. I think it's a pretty bad name. 
but it protects against Ebola Zaire, the most common strain of Ebola. Okay. Uh, little note. It was developed by scientists at the Canadian National Microbiology Laboratory uh, in Winnipeg. Of course, we have to get a... We have to get a plug for Canada in, yeah. don't we? Oh, well, technically, yeah. I was going to say Canadian scientists, but it didn't say that. So I don't know. The scientists might not be Canadian, uh, but they are working at the Canadian National Microbiology Laboratory. And they did have some U.S. funding, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. Okay. We'd have to mention that. They're not sponsoring the show. Flash, just yeah. cut them out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's the news. So they're kind of... Yeah, the approval has not happened yet. If it does happen, it sounds like it's going to go through in March. And I think the American authorities would be right behind. Um, so it's going to be the first. It looks like it's going to be the first Ebola vaccine approved. Um, but then <clears throat> it's an interesting... So, it, yeah, it sounds like the, the part of the process they're through that CHMP, which is the Scientific Committee of... European Medicine Agency have approved it and then it basically it's about two and a half months after that that the European Commission then approve it and then you can sell it but it's interesting that obviously that approval's in Europe we don't see that much Ebola in Europe <laughs> not yet maybe they know something um, we don't but I, but I think probably I would imagine a lot of that is I know the regulatory approval pathways in a lot of the African countries is incredibly you know in in europe it's around about 18 months um in africa it can be you know two three four years so i i would imagine as we talked about in, in pre-production you know why have a commercial vaccine well i think it makes it easier then to get it into places but i think just having having the approval somewhere in a major geography will make it easier yeah. you know even if it's not approved in these i countries. think that's It'll be well. It's approved in Europe. We can get. Yeah, that I think that's exactly it. Because that was my original thought too. Was like, okay, like everyone's lauding this as a as a great thing, and I was like, which it is to have a vaccine, of course. But we're already using it, and if we make it commercial, then who pays for it? That was my question. You know, like, well, then are is this just a move to hold these poor nations hostage when they need it to be like, well, you got it, but you gotta pay. But what I read was. Um, that it it would greatly um, increase the usage because the regulatory tape basically would be gone. So they're using it now, but because it's a still officially an experimental vaccine, they have to use a research right. protocol. So the WHO, Medicine Sans Frontières, all these people that are using it um, have to yeah there's a different protocol and it's a research protocol so they right. probably have to have study design all these different and things the yeah ethics and, approval yeah, in order to yeah. use it which in an outbreak scenario like just slows you way the hell down and so by having it approved in at least some you know accepted by some accepted body like the european commission yeah then you can just we have an outbreak let's do it and i don't like and then in terms of funding who pays for it i'm sure it's who raises money or medicine sans frontier raises money or something you know probably but i'd also and i i I don't know so i'll speculate but i'll speculate in a good way you know merck have a very good history of giving medicines or what you know ivermectin is a great example you know the drug that they developed and designed for 
parasite control, which is extremely effective in controlling on- Oncocerc and River Brightness, they give that drug away now. They manufacture it and they give it away yeah. free because it's such a horrendous disease. So, it, you know, I think Merck have a great history at, at doing things like this. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, this is something that they they do and, and give away because ultimately yeah. you're not going to get these countries to pay for it with all the the issues that we, we've talked about before. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it is, it's so, one of those things. It's like all neglected tropical diseases that occur in these poor uh, areas of the world. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, I, you know, it sounds like if the Canadian National Microbiology Lab was working on it and then they had funding from this U.S. agency, it's like a lot of the development work was probably done there um, where they're getting funding to do these things. They're public research agencies yeah. and then sort of Merck maybe comes along at the end and gives it the final push and the mass production and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I don't know exactly yeah. the whole, you know, ins and outs of it, but it is a good thing uh, because in the next... Yeah, no, stuff like stuff Yeah, and in the next outbreak, it, they'll be able to get it out faster. And you can stockpile yeah. it and stuff now too. So it's, yeah. So it's there. hopefully the next outbreak, well, hopefully we get this one under control and then the next one doesn't happen before March. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed, everyone. Wash yeah. your hands. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the Ebola update. Okay. No, and I, you know, it's a good way to start. I think you know we've been negligent in our updates in general, so I think it was good to come out the bat. So, okay, I'm gonna, you know, we, we've we've discussed the source there. I'm gonna dive in. You know, I've had a few glasses of wine. We've not done this for a little while, so you know, what better thing to dive into than the world of physics that I know very. It's another about. podcast tradition um, of us muddling through some kind of yeah physics story that we both can't really comprehend if ever we decide to ditch the saviors of modern media is our Never. tagline then muddling through shit that we don't know would probably be the next if you line. read beyond saviors um, of modern media that's basically what the show description is yeah yeah i think yeah, if, if if we could get it all on that same line, but you know, space is quite limited on the website. And we sound and like stuff, less so, of saviors when yeah. we're muddling through stuff, but hey. Exactly. But that's never stopped us before, and it sure as hell ain't going to stop me right muddle now. Muddle away, my so, friend. So, okay, well, I'm going to muddle, th- muddle through. I'm going to muddle through the murky world of dark mm, energy. Spooky. Yeah, so when I, I saw the word dark energy, I was like, oh, okay, I've just seen the trailer to the new Star Wars mm-hmm. film, so is it... You know, the dark side of the force is it you know some sort of nuclear power that's dark and being made under the radar um but no s- squish all that dark energy is basically what makes the universe what it is yeah isn't it related to dark matter uh no well uh, i don't know i think that's it basically. is I, I, okay okay keep well, going um, and we'll see Maybe okay. I'll keep going. I'll I'll keep digging this hole, and you can either throw me a rope or just piss on me while I'm down in it. Choice is yours. Um, so dark energy. So dark energy is basically um, it comes from the Big Bang theory. So the Big Bang theory is that billions of years ago there was this huge bang. The universe was created, and because of that bang, the universe is expanding still. Um, but it's been predicted that you know, as with 
if you throw a stone into the, the pond and the ripples go, those ripples eventually slow down. So it's predicted that the Big Bang happened and the expansion of the universe will start to slow down because you've got this thing called gravity mm -hmm. basically working against it. Um, but what they discovered in uh, 1998 actually is not only are we still expanding, it's still accelerating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, what's causing that? So, it was believed that something basically is overriding gravity, and that thing has the name of dark energy. Right. Um, dark energy is actually most of the universe. So, the prediction is that around 5% of all the atoms that make up planets, stars, galaxies... It's around about 5%. The other 95% is dark energy. So it's a massive thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's huge. Um, and uh, there was a quote from one of the guys that's working on this project, uh, Professor uh, Lahav, or Lahav, L-A-H-A-V, who's at University College London. Um, it's a great quote. He, he basically says, it's embarrassing to live in a universe where you only know 5%. <laughs> Get used to it. That's like um, how I live my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also unlike scientists, you know, it's obviously it's we've discussed before, it's like the media to build things up, but it's also unlike scientists to overstate things mm -hmm. too much. Um, but they've basically said this could not only revolutionize physics, but the whole of physics, not just astronomy physics, but the mm -hmm. whole of physics. Um. And I'll come on to a, a little bit of that in a minute. So basically what they're doing is they're, they're, they're looking into this dark energy and the rate of expansion in the universe. And the way they've done that is they've created a super telescope. Um, and the plan is to do a survey of the universe. It'll be the most detailed, the largest survey of the universe ever. Um, it's a five-year program, which made me think of Star Trek. The original Star Trek was a five-year mission to boldly go. Uh, it be a five-year program. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but in the first first year of this project, they will have surveyed more galaxies than all the other telescopes in the world nice. combined, just within nice. the first year. So, yeah, that puts it, you know, this is on a massive scale. And the idea is that it, it sheds light on dark energy, if you pardon the pun, and how that expansion of the universe happens. So, basically, this super telescope is constructed of... 5,000 mini telescopes and each of those telescopes can image a single galaxy every 20 minutes so it's generating a huge amount yeah. of data here um, the team that are working on it uh, are called the uh, the DESI or the DESI team the Dark Energy Spectroscopic Instrument uh, team the D-E-S-I basically they've um, it's an international team uh, made up of scientists all over the world hence the phrase international. Um, and the they've retrofitted their technology onto the male telescope, which is in uh, Arizona, Kitt Peak, Arizona. And basically, the um, super telescope is made up of 5,000 optical fibers, each of which acts as a mini telescope. And as I said, basically, each one of those optical fibers, or each one of those telescopes, um, every 20 minutes can detail survey a galaxy. Um, but because of this, it means that we can effectively look back in time. Right. Because the light coming so, from those galaxies is so old that it's actually... Exactly. And it takes so, forever to get here. Exactly. 
so the power of this telescope basically will give us the power to look back 10 billion light years so light that left its part of origin 10 billion years ago so this is huge so is that the furthest is that like the oldest light that we've seen like being able to it will will be be. going back that far so what if they go all the way back to the end and it they find like the big bang never happened yeah well maybe they just find god there yeah who knows or there's just like a little sphincter at the end of the universe just kind of like pumping out matter (laughs) yeah like oh the universe's butthole that's what it was this whole time yeah well, a letdown, <laughs> I don't know. It'd be yeah, kind of but... interesting. I'd want to know who's who's on the other side of that butthole. Um, so I said I said earlier, this could revolutionise physics as we we know it. So why is that? So firstly, when I was researching this, you, you have to know how does dark energy work? What's it pushing? And they 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 speculate that the key is around a thing called vacuum pressure, mm. and basically it's caused by fluctuations in the fabric. And this is where it gets really Star Trekky. So. Yeah, I'm a nerd and I quite like this. It's caused by fluctuations in the fabric of the space-time, in the the fabric of space-time, at the subatomic level. So in Star Trek, you hear the space-time continuum uh, and, you know, subspace and whatever. So basically, fluctuations... Mm -hmm. At the subatomic level. At the subatomic level is what creates this pressure called vacuum Mm -hmm. pressure. Uh, And the rough calculation of how strong this is um, or the, the the number on that unit is a one with a hundred and twenty zeros behind it. Whoa! That's... So I'm not even going to go into billion, trillion, whatever. Yeah. I, I, I don't know it, but you know, one with hundred and twenty zeros. But there's a couple of possibilities here. So the first possibility that's been speculated is that vacuum pressure, um, bit like we talked about earlier. The, you know, the speculation was originally that there was the Big Bang and the universe is expanding, but it's slowing. So what they're saying is, well, potentially that still is the case. So vacuum pressure um, was bigger, but it has dwindled mm. somewhat. And it, that would be the number that we're at now, this one with 120 zeros behind it. Um, but if it is the same, then the speculation is that our universe is one of what they call multiverse. Yeah. Yeah, baby. Multiverse. I'm into that. Um, but ours has a tiny vacuum pressure compared to mm. others. And therefore, the speculation is that life actually is dictated by vacuum pressure. So matter can only exist in a universe that has a vacuum pressure on the same kind of level as our universe. Whoa. So, like, you know how they talk about, like, the Goldilocks zone of a planet has to be around the sun at a certain, not too far, not too, because then that gives the right conditions for life. But now we're talking about this on a universal scale. So maybe that is the case, but then maybe, as well as that, you need this vacuum pressure. Right, that's what I mean. So, like, our universe is in the Goldilocks zone of vacuum pressure. So, like, all the multiverses next to us may not have life, well, or life as we know it, or, like, a different, you know, because... (sighs) Good God. Um, But then this is where it gets to the whole piece about revolutionizing physics. So... The theory of gravity and the theory of force is that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But actually what they're saying is potentially what this work could show is the theory of gravity is actually incomplete. And actually maybe gravity doesn't have an opposing force. Hmm. 
or if it does, it has an opposing force that is greater than gravity because it's still expanding and gravity can't pull it back. So potentially the whole theory of gravity that's been built on, developed, thought about for hundreds mm-hmm. of years could have another kink right. in the story. Well, I mean, in gravity and gravitational um, waves was something that we just... Dis- like gravitational waves is something we just discovered like last year or finally were able to measure last year. And it more or less proves the existence of gravity kind of, which like it gravity again is one of these things that it's like, we know how to measure it. We know how to account for it. We know that objects exert it. We know, but like what it actually is, you know, who knows? Right. And And I'm, I'm not going to get into that after a bottle of wine. Yeah, me telling but you. this is just another one of those things where it's like, okay, we can measure it. We can kind of account for like, if you add, and this is what I always thought like of dark matter, the explanation of dark matter for me was like, the calculations basically don't work until you account for this unknown substance and unknown substance right. is dark is what they've termed dark matter. And it's like, so when you put that into, when you account for it, all the calculations that predict movement of planets, you know, like all the stuff around gravity work, then they work. work. And so this is just like another one of those things where it's like this, we know that something is exerting some kind of influence on objects. What is it? Don't know, but you can calculate it. And you can calculate the effect of it. You know what I mean? It's like physics is all this. It's just algebra where there's a missing component. And, you know, we know that the planet's moving like this. We can watch the planet move like this. We can see what's happening. So how do we predict that? Well, you come up with an equation to predict it. You put in all the variables in your equation that you know are there that you can measure, you know, speed, weight, whatever but there's always something missing and the equation doesn't work out and it doesn't predict the movement until you add in these phantom numbers, these dark numbers. So it's mind blowing. And it makes me, the multiverse thing is super cool because I've been convinced of the multiverse by a number of things that I can't explain. Like not like experiences I've had. I'm talking books I've read. (laughs) It's all the psychedelic chemtrails you've been inhaling for That's Dude, what it is. I haven't even gone that deep down that hole yet. Well, don't don't go down that deep. But yeah, for me, I think what always amazes me with any type of astronomy is is the looking back. Yeah, in that's time. pretty you wild. Know, we'll, we'll be able to look back ten billion light years, you know, to see as you said, what we're going to see when we go back. There. Are we going to see? The universe's butthole sphinctering. <laughs> Are we going to see, uh, you know, other planets, mm-hmm, other stars, mm-hmm. other universes, multiverses? Some kind of new that, variable that, that we hadn't the, measured before. Some, you know, I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, all signs point to the Big Bang. So hopefully, this going back that far, you see more of that. You get more, you know, evidence along that way. Obviously, you want some new things to sort of put some quirks in it. I don't know. Maybe you do want to see something totally different. That's like, yeah, big bang's totally wrong. And it's something else, but yeah, yeah. yeah, the multiverse thing, like the looking back in time thing, that to me is the most easily understandable part. Just like light can only travel so fast. So the light that you're seeing is actually this old. And the multiverse thing, I don't know. I was going to say 
the multiverse thing, I've read a number of things that it seems to make sense. And I've listened to some physicists that talk about it, that it's like, okay, that makes sense. But it makes sense in this kind of ephemeral way in that it's like all of your, you know, there's like thousands of multiverses and we all exist in those multiverses or copies of us exist in those multiverses and like all the infinite possibilities of every branching of thing is existing in all those times. But then when you talk about it in this way, where it's like there's this vacuum pressure thing and that vacuum pressure might be essential to life, well, it's like, well, then those multiverses, my multiverse self isn't actually existing in all those multiverses. And it's not in this quantum thing, you know, like it's the multiverse thing becomes this quantum thing where it's like two particles can exist. A particle can exist in two different states at one time. And there's the spooky entanglement and all that shit. So it's like, well, what is it? Like, it's kind of, there's some conflict there. It's making my brain yeah, hurt. I, well, and that's, that's the, you know, if, if they're saying within one year they'll have surveyed more galaxies than all the other telescopes on Earth together, and then they've got another four years yeah. on top of, you know, this is, this is one we can keep an eye on, but, I, you know, I sense with all that data, that's going to take them a, a long time to get through. A yeah. long time to yeah. churn through it all. Um, so it'd be interesting and then you know potentially the fact that we might take the theory theory of gravity as we know it and turn some or all of it on its head you know that that's fairly you know because it's you know it's, it's a bit of a mainstay of physics as we're taught at schools isn't it I know it changes at certain levels mm-hmm. as you go up the educational pathway but you know the basic theory of gravity is something that's a mainstay yeah, of physics yeah, yeah. and then suddenly to say well actually there's a another another potential change but to this that. i think Come is on. a good thing because it's like i don't think you're gonna like turn gravity on its head so far that it's well what we all thought was wrong it's like no we've got a pretty good handle on you right. know we can land ships on the moon and all this stuff right but all the ufo stuff i've been following recently it's all about ships that can manipulate gravity and, you know, fly around with like zero resistance and stuff like this and zero propulsion. So maybe this is it. Maybe we finally get into the big leagues. And and you called me a nerd at the start. Get them aliens. Anyway, uh, really quickly, what I saw on dark energy, dark matter is that dark energy pushes things out and dark energy. No, dark energy goes out. And dark matter yeah. brings things in, attracts things in. Um, okay. But as far as I understand, they're both like sort of unknown forces. Dark matter attracts, dark energy repels. Dark matter pulls matter inward. Dark energy pushes it outward. Uh, also, while dark energy shows itself only on the largest cosmic scale, dark matter exerts its influence on individual galaxies as well as the universe at large. They estimate that the universe is, I can't remember what number you said, but the thing I'm looking at here says 68% dark energy, 27% dark matter, and then 5%. Yeah. Okay. But either way, we only know 5% of it. Yeah, we know very little. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And that's what science is about. That's why, you know, it will be always continuing. There'll always be something new to learn. Yeah, pretty astonishing. And yeah, let's get some gravity ships. I want to see them aliens. The Area 51 oh, thing didn't work out as good as everyone was hoping. Was it Area 51 or Area 52? 
I was thinking about the air, Storm Area 51 event that <laughs> was super ridiculous. Kind of awesome, but super ridiculous. Well, talking of ridiculous, when we, when we, the way we do this, listeners, is we rock up, flash and I research drink, our own drink stories. Drink a bottle of wine. And then drink a bottle of wine. I've got a dribble left, actually. I'm going to finish that <laughs> off right now. Um, but then before we before we hit play and record and record this onto cassette tape, um, those you old enough to remember yeah. the cassette tape, and then Flash does some magic and puts it all digitally. I send I it to it the works. president of the internet um, and he puts it on the internet for me. Yeah. Right. So that's that's basically how it works. Since we basically we rock up. I've done my research on stories. I know a lot of the time it probably sounds as if I haven't done a lot of research, mainly because I haven't. <laughs> Um, and Flash does his, he does a lot more research than I do. Uh, and then we rock up and when we, we, we try and keep things from each other. We don't really tell each other what the stories are. And then we say, okay, what have you got? What have we got? Very, very rarely. And in fact, I, I, I think I can only remember it once mm. in the past as it happened where we rock up with the same story. And then tonight, we haven't done this for a few months, we rock up with the same story, which we'll move on to now, which I think is a great way to, to wrap up the show in a, Mm-hmm. a light way um, but you know we've talked about dark energy and you know creating amazing amazing tele- super telescopes that can generate so much data 5,000 mini telescopes each taking an image of the galaxy every 20 minutes changing the world of physics on its head while that's going on in one laboratory in another there is somebody teaching rats A how to drive cars and B how to play yeah. hide and seek. That is the crazy <laughs> world of scientists and the crazy world of science in which we live. So, Flash, you and I both came to the, came to the table with the rats in cars, so that maybe let's come on to that at the end. But rats in hide and seek, I'm, you teased me with it and you didn't tell me any more, so tell yeah, me more. Yeah, this one... Should I count to ten with my eyes closed before uh, you tell me more? Count to ten, close your eyes, chug the rest of your wine. Turn around yeah. three times. <laughs> and, we'll, and let's get a little weird. Really? That sounds like you're going to touch me. That sounds a little bit... Unless we figure out a way to get through, you know, across time, through the multiverse, and my hand will poke out behind... Are you trying to get into my dark matter? (laughs) Dirty boy. All right, anyway. Yeah, rats playing hide-and-seek. This is what somebody's doing with their their precious time and hard-earned research funding, (laughs) is teaching rats how to play hide-and-seek. Uh, and the funny thing about this one is the quote from the Michael Brecht of Humboldt University in Berlin, the prestigious Humboldt, Humboldt University in Berlin, says, I got the idea from YouTube. There are all these YouTube videos from pet owners. Quote, there are all these YouTube videos from pet owners that say their animals love to do this. And it's although it's known that rats play do a lot of rough and tumble play, which you know my lovely wife Teresa studies, and she is all credit to her. She's the one that brought this story to my attention. Uh, they do do a lot of rough and tumble play games, um, which makes them a good animal to study in terms of social behavior and the importance of play in social development and stuff, uh, which we've talked about with Teresa on a past episode. Um, hide-and-seek is so much more elaborate so this guy brecht wondered can they do it can rats do it and i guess that was the that's the motivation for this 
Uh, so okay, he and his enough. lab mates, he and his colleagues, set up a 30-square-meter playroom equipped with cardboard shelters and an array of boxes uh, with different opaque and transparent plastic made of that. So they made this room. There was several different hiding places for the rats and three hiding places for the study's um, game master, so a human, uh, who was the neuroscientist Annika Stephanie Reinhold. Props to Annika. So after living in cages, they took these six adolescent male rats, put them in the big room, and once they got accustomed to that, they basically they taught them how to play hide-and-seek. So they would start the game with a rat inside a box, and when the rat was meant to be the seeker, the this uh, Ms. Reinhold, Dr. Reinhold, would close the box and hide. And then the box would open with a remote control, and after a while, the rat knew, like was trained to know that uh, that was the cue to leap out and start looking for her. Uh, and then when it found her, they rewarded the rats with petting and tickling, not food. And so, okay, yeah, and so when I was talking with uh, Teresa about this before recording tonight, she was saying that some colleagues met these researchers at a uh, conference. And that's... They, they, they sought them right, out, didn't they? That's right. Oh, you're so clever. They were they were hiding somewhere, but you know, so they clever. found them well done. Um, and they said that, like, I guess in their lab, what they study is um, sensory, some kind of sensory, you know, that's stuff. That's sort of what their lab does. So, yeah. Sensory yeah, stuff. Right. I'm not a scientist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Says the guy that's qualified as a scientist way more than me. Listeners, we are in for a rough ride. But that's right where this one of the things. That's why they like tickling is one of the things that they they study. So I'm guessing that's why they did it. And I wonder if there was also like some kind of by not having a food reward. It's that's food reward is kind of the classic thing you train animals with. So maybe there was yeah. something there. I don't know. Um, and then when the rat was the hider, they would just leave the box open and crouch beside it, and the rat would jump out and go to one of the hiding places. So within two weeks, five of six of the rats learned how to play hide-and-seek and learned how to not switch between those roles during the middle of the game. So they knew that they had to be like, when I'm, you know, when I'm the seeker, that's what I do. When I'm the hider, that's all I do. Right. Uh, I guess one of the six just didn't get it so <laughs> who knows or or he saw through it all yeah. And went, well, yeah, yeah i don't even like being tickled you're gonna pet you're gonna pet me and yeah. tickle me at some point or or exactly that maybe he was like don't touch me i don't want your hands yeah, on me exactly they've been maybe yeah. it's just a clean freak yeah, i've seen knows. you touching all the other rats i don't want their fur on me yeah don't come here with your rat infested yeah could be fingers. could be uh and so then i guess they did it again a second set of experiments and a different researcher researcher was able to train four more rats to play the game um so here again is a quote from brecht michael brecht many scientists think this is trivial but these are very complex behaviors uh, and it's because the rats uh, assume the different roles so they looked at the neural underpinnings of the rats playful behavior they recorded electrical signals from about 180 neurons in a brain region 
involved in learning called the prefrontal cortex. Um, and roughly one third of the cells fired like crazy when they would close the lid of the box, which was the cue for the rat as to whether it's going to be seeking or hiding, which suggested that this region is particularly sensitive to learning the rules of the game. Um, yeah, and then some of the other interesting behaviors were that they were able to, some of the rat behavior hinted that they kind of knew um, they could imagine another person's perspective, which is another higher level cognitive capacity called theory of mind. Uh, and basically it was that as they were searching the room for the rat, so when the rat was hiding, the rats would very often run to a place that she had already checked as if they were knowing that while well, she's already checked there, she's not going to recheck it and that they could win the game, you know? So not only are they dirty little cheaters, that shows that they might actually have the perspective of her. You know, they were thinking of her perspective and how she was playing the game. Um, so it suggests the animals might be able to consider another person's viewpoint, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and they also wanted to know whether they were playing for the fun of it or for the reward of the, the cuddling and the tickling. And several cues uh, point to the former. When the rats find the researchers, um, they executed what is known as joy jumps, or in German, Freudensprung. Well, <coughs> I think most of the listeners have always had a bit of a Freudensprung. Yeah, about oh, yeah. Them, I would think. Well, I got Freudensprung right now. <laughs> oh, well, fortunately, the camera's <laughs> on your face. Uh, and so this is a this is a move that a lot of animals do, a lot of mammals do when they're having fun. So rabbits, lambs, people, you know, they jump when they're having a good time. Uh, Thanks yeah. for that mental image flash. Thank In you. addition, uh, the rats often would scurry off to new hiding place after being found, as to extend the game and postpone the re reward. So it was like they, you know, uh -huh. they wanted to keep the game going. Um, what else did they find? Da -da. Yeah, no, that was, yeah, I think that's about it. So is, is the idea behind it that they can use this as enrichment or is, what's, what's the end goal? Yeah, see that one, I don't, I don't know. I didn't get a chance to read the actual paper. I everything I was giving you here was from a article in Science magazine uh, by. Let's give credit to the author that I was just reading from, Emily Underwood, and I will post a link to that so you guys can check it. Yeah. Oh, Emily. <laughs> I don't know. Um. Yeah. Uh. I think it was like he said. Like he said he saw these YouTube videos. Was curious whether they could do it. And this will kind of tie into the rats driving cars because one of the motivations between the rats driving cars or one of the <clears> things <throat> that they saw, what they, I don't know if they set out to prove this, but one of the conclusions was just like how complex the rat mind actually is and that it can learn these really complex tasks. And this one too yeah. is very much like it hinted at all these things, like this theory of mind, being able to um, have somebody else's perspective. Um, and then it's a complex game. Like when you think about it, it sounds very simple, but the rules are very strict. 
Whereas like rough and tumble play where you're just sort of wrestling with somebody, there is rules, there is maneuvers that they do and certain, you know, goals to the game. All play has that sort of reciprocity and there's rules and you have to understand that. But this is actually a pretty, when you think about it, explaining the rules, you're going to hide, I'm going to wait a bit and let you hide, and then I'm going to come and try and find you. And the rats would like, they would stay quiet when they were in their hiding places. Like normally they make um, ultrasonic vocalizations all the time. And so they would actually stay quiet when they were in their hiding places and they chose the opaque rather than transparent boxes to hide in. So it was like they really understood the game. They got into it, seemed to like it. And then they were also, like I said, they were able to understand the two roles to the game. And they could understand that when they're in this role, that's what they're doing and not to switch and try and find like i don't even think you could teach this to a dog like dogs you know try and teach a game like this to a dog and they're just running around be like oh you saw me oh well, what am i doing here oh i love i love hanging when, out. when you when you first started telling the story you said about you know the guy being inspired by the youtube video i did wonder and I, i'm not sure what the name of the craze is but there's that whole thing where you stand in the doorway with a blanket yeah and yeah yeah this, and then you you show yourself to the pet you hold the blanket you drop the blanket and you and they freak the side, out you know and Seeing the reaction, yeah, seeing the reaction of some of the pets there. So I, I did wonder if that was some of the the videos there. But I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on to rats and cars because um, I basically I've had enough of doing this now. I forgot how much hard work this show actually is, and you know my wine glass is almost empty, and I need some more. And to do that, we need to finish. But um, yeah, so I wanted to move us on from rats playing hide and seek to rats mm-hmm. driving cars, and this is one of those example of a great headline when i first saw the headline rats taught to drive i thought that's amazing i can't afford a tesla you know the autonomous vehicle is probably a few years away from being you know fully tested and legal yet brilliant we're just going to train rats to drive and then i was like how are they going to reach the pedals (laughs) that's just not gonna are they gonna they get jobs with uber how does this work are they gonna wear some sort of stilts little uniforms little hats so you know that they're an accredited rat taxi driver Right, exactly. You know, I just don't want to get into a taxi That's with right. any rat, you know. Uh, and then what especially I don't want is then my driver, rat driver, to start playing hide-and-seek with me when he's meant to be driving <laughs> me home after a few beers. Looking for cuddles. So my mind, when, yeah, my mind when I saw this headline started racing, I've got to be honest, and then, um, and then I read into it, and then I was like, oh, it's one of these things where the media have tempted me in, but... No, to be fair, they have actually built little yeah. tiny electrical cars um, that look like plastic jam jars on like Lego Meccano yeah, yeah, yeah. wheels type thing. The videos are um, great if you haven't so, seen like, I, to watch the videos of these little rats drive these cars. It's hilarious. Yeah. I've only seen the pictures, so we should we should post the, the video. So, and I know you, you I hope, I'm hoping you've done a bit more research than I have, Flash, but the University of Richmond in the U.S., um, published recently in Behavioral Brain Research Journal, where they basically took uh, 17 rats and they taught them to drive these little plastic electric cars. Um, but actually what they showed, and, and this is where it, it took the leap to me, and then I had to dig into it a bit more, was um, the rats felt relaxed during the task. And it's like, well, obviously they have not mm-hmm. been stuck in rush hour in a normal car before. Um, but basically the from what I saw, they, they created a tiny electrical car that basically they steered by copper yeah. cable. Is this what you saw as well? So three three cables 
if they touched one of them the car went left if they touched the other it went right and if they touched the other it went straight ahead um, and it took months of training but eventually these rats got the gist of well, if I touch this one mm -hmm. I go left if I touch this I go right now this is where they came back they were rewarded with cereal and Fruit Loops. food treats as opposed to it was Fruit Loops was it Fruit Loops okay as opposed to you know the little yeah, tickling yeah, yeah. and patting that you know as we know these rats these can like um, but they so they Flash, help me. So they took some rats that were just normal lab rats, but then they took some from a enriched yeah. environment. So they're lab rats, but they're yeah. in a better quality so house. So from my cursory reading of it all, um, I think that was one of the things that they were that they were looking at was well, first of all, can they learn the task? And that shows again, like right. the hide and seek, this this complexity of the brain and how you know adaptable i guess it really is and and they are um and then the other thing the other thing they were testing was yes this enrichment versus uh not enrichment environment which is a pretty established thing i think now too um in that you know if you're there in an enriched environment growing up they're going to be better off basically so they'll be more um adapted socially they won't have problems with the other rats, they'll be happier there and uh, they can actually learn tasks like this faster. So the ones that were in the enriched environments that are more natural to what a rat would do, they have lots of things to play with, make nests, hide, run around, they're with their friends and that kind of thing. They learn the task faster. They learn the, and they were better. better yeah. drivers is what I... Than the ones that yeah. had the, we'll say, not enriched environment. Um, so they expected that they were going to be better. Like that was the, the hypothesis is that they're going to be better. But I guess they were surprised at how much better they were. So, yeah, that was the one thing. And then, yeah, and then they looked at uh, the stress and they took fecal samples from the rats and they looked for yeah. these stress hormone markers. Um, and basically they found that all the rats that were trained to drive had higher levels of a hormone that's known to counter stress. So that's where they got this idea yeah. that they're relaxed um, from it. And I think they took that to indicate that there was more um, satisfaction in mastering a new skill. So by, by learning this kind yeah. of complex and thing and skill mastery, the rat was, was more stressed. And they, did, they had another uh, measure of that because the rats who drove themselves had higher levels of this stress hormone, the stress reducing hormone compared to passenger rats that were just in the car. Yeah. Uh, really? But not, okay. I thought when I heard it, heard that I was like, so they got two rats in there. One's driving, one's a passenger. And I was like, well then of course the, the other rat's going to be stressed. Cause he's like, you're going the wrong way, you know, backseat driver, classic. But, um, <laughs> it was actually a human was driving it like remotely. So, and uh, I mean, maybe okay. you could look at that. I don't know. Like that makes sense. Okay, um, he's not. It, it leads to it reinforces their idea that mastering the skill and doing it is the is the stress reducing thing. But I don't I don't know if the stress was elevated in the passenger because I could see the passenger too just being like, "What the hell's going on?" And like higher stress being. So, and I don't know exactly if it was like 
passenger rats were also rats that had learned to drive, so were used to the car. Yeah, that That's kind what of I was going to ask. I yeah. imagine that yeah. they have some kind of control on that, but I don't know what it is. The paper's behind a paywall, and I didn't get it illegally yet. Um, I mean, it's behind a paywall, so I'm never going to see the data. Uh, test, test, test. Is this still on? Um, yeah, and they maintained interest in driving the car through an extin- extinction phase, which is, I believe, the extinction phase in behavioral experiments is sort of you're not reinforcing the behavior anymore. And, yeah. Okay, not, you're heading towards a cliff. Yeah, down in Louise <laughs> no, style and no, off these little rats just like, okay. Hey. Uh yeah. Uh, no, I think it's they're not the they're not maybe they're not being rewarded for it anymore or something. But there's it's it's usually there's this extinction phase when they sort of lose interest in the behavior, forget it, whatever it is, something like that. So these rats actually appear to enjoy, just like the ones appeared to enjoy playing hide and seek. These ones appear to enjoy driving, and then. Well, for me. Well, as I said, so for me, you know, once I got over the initial shock and upset that I'm not going to have a rat chauffeur with a little hat driving my car around, I said, well, why the hell, why have we taught rats to drive? But this, where it was interesting for me is the plan is to use this research to drive non-pharmaceutical treatments for mental illness like depression and schizophrenia because you map out how the brain works a bit more. And you said earlier about the satisfaction mm-hmm. of learning a a new skill actually they then think well you know maybe this is a way of relieving depression or things like that of actually if we teach people a new skill a they've got a new skill but actually it doesn't need to be that big a skill or how complex a skill does it need to be for the for the symptoms that we're treating them for to be alleviated and I th- this is an interesting first step mm-hmm. in that of you know not going down the route of well here's a antidepressant tablet yeah. and on you go you know, another part of that of, well, you know, I think the, the the crux I saw is that, you know, people that are depressed, it's very hard to motivate them, isn't it? So, you know, you have to find that drive of, you know, rather than just taking the pill of doing something else or maybe doing combination. Mm-hmm. But yeah, once I got over the initial depressing of, oh, I'm not going to have a rolling rat chauffeur driving me around. What's the point? Well, actually, there is quite an interesting yeah, point. Yeah, I was a little surprised too that that was the, that was the sort of, takeaway at the end of it all uh you know i i could see you know mapping brain regions during a complex task learning all that stuff but then for it to have this sort of translational bent at the end that it's i mean neuro translation related to neurogenerative disease makes sense and that was the other one not just psychiatric but neuro neurodegenerate g you know what i mean I thought I was the one drinking the wine. Your brain starts melting, and that's what's happening to me. Um, Because that's That's the multiverse brain. uh, I mean, that's pretty classic. It's, you know, when they say with Alzheimer's and stuff like this, is that learning new skills is protective against the the bad effects of Alzheimer's and other diseases that mush your brain up. Um, So that made sense to me. But psychiatric illness, I was like, okay, interesting. But, I mean, there is a growing body of research that talks about how behavioral um, changes affect, you know, some of your your mood, your neurotransmitter levels, your neurochemistry, this kind of stuff, and then, therefore, behavior and your feelings. So it 
follows in that line that, hey, you know, learn a skill. So everybody, learn a skill. Yeah, I can't disagree. Flash, I'm going to give us a summary of where we've been because I've, I've enjoyed our time together, but my wine glass is yeah, not empty. Yeah, that's about and, all you can stand. I know, I know what you're here for. Yeah, you know, yeah, basically once the alcohol goes, my tolerance for you somewhat goes off the cliff like Dumber and Louise rat driving car type <laughs> scenarios so um it's been great to be back in the cell where have we been tonight well we've learned that the world of physics as we know it Ooh. could change it's science it could be um, or not it could be or it could not yeah um so there's there's that happening which is massive um Ready or not, here I come. Uh, we've learned that rats enjoy role play, which I kind of always knew they had it in them. Um, and then, you know, occasionally when they like to dress up, we've learned that potentially, you know, Uber will be mm. staffed by rats in the future with little hats uh, driving, you know, tiny electric cars. Which uh, you heard it here first, people. You know, when rats take over the world. They'll do so in tiny little they tanks. They'll do it in tiny electrical cars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Flash, it's been incredible. We, you know, we gave a shout out at the, at the start of the show. We'll give one at the end to um, featherposter.com using the uh, coupon That's correct. to Brad. Is that, yeah, T-W-O Brad, uh, or one word. If you want to get in touch with the show... Please don't berate us with, hey, I've been waiting for you guys to record for ages. We know. Plus, I've been we giving you all content. Um, yeah. So, and come on. Yeah, actually, we, we didn't give a shout out. We, we, we hinted that you've been, you know, a bit of a fluffer <laughs> in between and teasing the uh, the audience and the listeners with a few of the uh, In Conversation series. But actually, you know, I would encourage people to have a listen. I've listened to a couple. I've got... I said to you earlier, Flash, I've got a road trip coming up this weekend, so I'm going to listen to some more. I, I listened to the one with uh, Dr. Brian Heron, who obviously is a friend as well, but that was a, a yeah, really interesting one. I quite one. enjoyed and that. Actually, I've, um, and uh, I, I think that showed in the recording, but I, I know I've directed a couple of people towards that, and they've given me good and feedback. And we did, I, did so. uh, I had a nice chat with uh, Simon Landry, the guy who started uh, FeatherPost.com. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, that was Go a really fun that. one too. I really yeah, enjoyed another that. another good so. one. So and he's got his own podcast yeah. as well, hasn't he? So, drsimonlandry.com. Um, you can check out all yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, as always, if you want to get in touch with the show, Twitter is probably the best way. That's at two Brad for you, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, Brit Brad, obviously the talent, the star of the show, um, for autographs, you know, opening of supermarkets, public appearances, that sort of thing. Uh, you can do so. Well, you could do w. so Hayes if you provide a bottle of wine. That's we all know now. That's the motivation for him to do anything. Right now, I'd set up a half a bottle of wine. You know, the going rate has come down because that <laughs> bottle is empty and there is no more in the house. Um, Flash, if the listeners want to hit you up, touch you up, how um, do they do it? Bottle of wine. You know, maybe a compliment here or there. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty. Couple easy. of roofies at B Van on Twitter, Instagram. I'm told that the young people, it's all Perfect. Instagram uh, now, so maybe we oh, should really? be well, leaning case, harder into so that one. I don't know. So happens, so happens, at 2 Brad for you would also find That's us right. on Instagram as well. Um, so give that a listen as well. Flash, I've missed you. 
it's it's uh, been good to be back in the saddle. We won't right. be so long next time. I too have enjoyed and, uh, myself tonight. Well, yeah, but what about the conversation <laughs> we've had? Yeah, it was all right. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Uh, listeners, thank you so much. You're the ones that we do this for, not just to you know bathe our egos in you know physics and science because we know very little about physics and probably a little bit more about general science but that's about it um but we love doing it and we do it for you don't be flash really ultimately i'm gonna i'm gonna go with that I'm lie and say maybe. yes i'm not doing this for myself at all yeah <laughs> okay let's move very quickly on um Flash, it's been emotional. It's been lovely. Listeners, thank you. Get in touch, and we will catch you next time on the Correct. Flip side. Thank you, everybody. See you next time. Cheers and jolly. Bye. season pro <laughs> I don't know this feels weird <laughs> feels like I'm you're cheating to... on yourself yeah I'm used to I'm used to staring at the wall with this mic in front of me talking well hold on let me let me do my blue still look oh yeah 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 you look like a wall <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice you, and plain you, you've got the rock and you've got the wall that's basically <laughs> Yeah, but it's not like an imposing wall. It's just like, you know, your bedroom wall. <laughs> All right. What you're saying is it's more of a stud wall than a brick wall. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. All right. All right. All right. Let's get into this. Okay. Quicker we start, quicker we finish. Mm -hmm. That's what I say to all the girls. <laughs>